Good evening. How's everybody this evening? Great, great, great. Um, I am here to introduce you to you tonight, respected female, uh, feminist historian, Professor Jean Baker. My name is Andrea Snyder, and I am a librarian here at Pratt. I work in the Business Science and Technology Department. Before that, I worked in the Social Science and History Department. So we were, when I met Ms. Baker, we were commenting about how that the book class is where I used to work. It doesn't fall where I work now. Um, and so tonight, Dr. Baker is going to be talking about her latest book, Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion. Dr. Baker received her MA and PhD from Johns Hopkins University. She began serving the Department of History at Goucher College in 1970 and is currently professor of history there, where she specializes in American history, 19th century political history, and women's history. Professor Baker has written numerous books, articles, and essays on the Civil War, Presidents Buchanan and Lincoln, Political Parties, and Historic American Women. Some books that she has written that you may have heard of are Mary Todd Lincoln, a, bi a biography, published in 1987, The Stevensons of Illinois, a biography of an American family, published in 1996, a biography of Buchanan, simply called James Buchanan, that was published in 2004, more recently, in 2006, Sisters, the Lives of American Suffragists. Professor Baker has also served as visiting professor at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. She has served on the Pulitzer History Jury and the Pulitzer Biography Jury and acted as chair, paper presenter, and commentator at various sessions for the Southern Historical Society and the organizations, Organization of American Historians. She is the 1976 American Council of Learned Societies Fellow, 1982 National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow, and the 1991 Newbery Library Fellow. In addition to these honors, she was also awarded the Berkshire Prize in History in 1983 for her book, Affairs of Party, The Political Culture of Northern Democrats in the Mid-19th Century, and the Willie Rose Prize in Southern History in 1989. Dr. Baker has lectured at colleges and universities nationwide, as well as appeared on C-SPAN, PBS, the History Channel, and local stations. Tonight, Dr. Baker will be speaking about her latest book, Margaret Sanger, The Life of, pa a Life of Passion. Margaret Sanger is best known for her advocacy and spearheading the birth control movement. Despite her pioneering efforts, including starting the first family clinic, Sanger held controversial views that have made her target still to this day. Dr. Baker's book, works to restore Margaret Sanger's place into back into feminist history. Publishers Weekly describes this book as an unbiased account that underscores the ferocity of the fight and the, and the necessity of the fight. If you don't already own a copy of the book, there'll be copies for sale following the talk. Please join me in welcoming Professor Jean Baker. It's always nice to come out and have these exuberant introductions. If you live long enough, uh, you find that these little tiny honors add up, and so it sounds wonderful to me to be able to hear all of that, and so thanks very much. I want to begin with a story. In the summer of 1912, a young nurse, and you know who she was, 
was called to a Lower East Side home by a physician. A woman suffering from a botched abortion, and remember, abortion was illegal uh, during, during this period and remained illegal until 1972. Most women who needed abortions went to back alley quacks, and this particular woman was hemorrhaging. So Margaret Sanger, the young nurse, picked up her bag and hastened down to the apartment of Sadie Sachs on the Lower East Side on uh, 10th Street. And when the hemorrhaging had been stopped and Sadie had somewhat recovered, she turned to the physician and said, I am 24 years old and I have six children. What can I do to not have any more? And the doctor said in that indifferent way of physicians during this period, because they were certainly not supporters of birth control, tell Jake to sleep on the roof. Six months later, uh, Margaret Sanger was called back. Must be something from across the street. Uh, was called back to that uh, same apartment. This time, Sadie Sachs was mortally ill from septicemia, and she died. This was the defining moment for Margaret Sanger's birth control movement. And as she walked back to her own apartment that night, she vowed that she would commit to a long struggle to make birth control legal, accessible, cheap, and effective. And at the end of this story, which she writes in her autobiography, she said, I will be heard, I will be heard. These are the same words that many of you may remember William Lloyd Garrison uttered as he began, began his abolitionist uh, crusade. And indeed, Margaret Sanger was heard. She is one of the signal reformers. Born in 1879, she died in 1966, who lived long enough and who was a successful activist, uh, so that when she died in 1966, she had indeed accomplished what she had set out to do. But today we find that she is vilified. Uh, she is held up as a eugenicist and a racist, uh, some of you may remember Herman Cain's statement uh, that uh, Margaret Sanger planned genocide against African Americans uh, by putting birth control clinics in Harlem. In fact, W.E.B. Du Bois had invited Margaret Sanger to somehow create a clinic in Harlem, which is, uh, in fact, uh, what she did. Sanger is also vilified in 
most of the right-wing organizations that seek to end funding of Planned Parenthood of America. I'm sure most of you in this room know that Planned Parenthood of America is the most important of the private public agencies that exist in the United States, uh, that they deliver essential sex education information as well as birth control, and their abortion is certainly part of what they do. Abortion, after all, is a legal procedure, but it is not the overwhelming part of their agenda. So uh, we live in a world in which Margaret Sanger uh, has become an agent, a tool, in a very political struggle. My book, which was started before what some call the pelvic wars that are going on today, was an effort to resituate Sanger uh, to place her in the context of her times. Uh, eugenics is a very, very uh, problematical issue. Uh, but if we are going to understand Margaret Sanger, then it seems to me we have to put her in the times. And during her period, uh, eugenicism was an extremely popular way of thinking about progress. Uh, you could improve the people through their genes. But besides this, uh, this battle of eugenicism, racism, uh, when I began researching this book, uh, it became very clear to me that there was a great personal story here. Margaret Sanger is the most unlikely reformer I can imagine. All of us know Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, even Alice Paul. All of these women grew up in households with considerable intellectual and economic assets. On the other hand, uh, Margaret Sanger grew up poor in Corning, New York. How many of you have been to Corning, New York? Uh, you know the geography. The rich people with the two and three children in their families live at the top of the hill. And then the poor people, and that was the Higginses, that's Margaret's birth name, uh, they lived at the bottom of the hill. But besides this, besides uh, the issue of class and money, uh, Margaret Sanger essentially was, was undereducated, and she had massive health problems. She had a sufficient number of health problems that uh, as I would read her letters, they would have made me uh, go to bed, I think, and retire and, not, and never try to do anything, much less try to shift public opinion on a matter which many people thought was vulgar and obscene. Uh, Sanger had tuberculosis of the tonsils. Uh, she suffered from gallbladder disease. Uh, she had heart trouble. Yes, it's true. She lived to be 86, 
Uh, but nonetheless, in her early life, especially, the tuberculosis was a tremendous challenge to her vitality. But nonetheless, uh, she was able to survive uh, the tuberculosis, and she was able uh, to become an energetic force. But I want to read you from the beginning of the book uh, to give you some sense of uh, what life was like in uh, the beginning. Margaret Sanger died in 1966. One of those rare signal reformers who lived long enough to celebrate the acceptance of their cause. And yet, in an ironic demonstration of her primacy in the movement that she named in 1915, she went to jail for in 1917, she organized in 1921, and she led in the United States for a half century, and internationally for 15 years, her name currently serves as a target for opponents of reproductive rights. Now, uh, let me turn to, the, to her beginnings. In the fall of 1879, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole book. <laughs> when Anne Purcell Higgins's time came, she called for neither midwife nor nurse. There was no hospital in Corning, New York, where the Higgins family lived in a tiny ramshackled shackled cottage on the western edge of town. Instead, it was her husband, Michael Hennessy Higgins, who eased her labor pains with his inimitable charm and a little whiskey from his flask. To save money, and because he believed himself to be as knowledgeable about medicine as any expert, Michael often doctored his family. By this time, both parents were experienced in matters of childbirth and took great pride in the size and health of their blemish-free 10-pound babies. They had a eugenic pride of race, wrote their famous daughter, Margaret Sanger, who later held her own views on that subject. Usually, the Higgins babies arrived every two years and sometimes more frequently in lockstep fashion after their mother stopped nursing and thereby lost a natural means of preventing ovulation. After one of the longest hiatuses from childbirth in her married life, uh, though the period included one nearly fatal miscarriage, Anne Higgins delivered another five children in 11 years. Eventually, the ravages of disease and the deliverance of menopause ended her childbearing years, but not before she had given birth to 11 children in 22 years and suffered seven miscarriages. She had been pregnant 18 times in 30 years of marriage. Six years after her last child was born in 1892, Anne Higgins succumbed to the tuberculosis that had made her last years an agony of fitful coughing, bloody expectoration, and persistent enervation. 
My mother died at 48, wrote Margaret Sanger, in sentences that need, needed no further explanation to make her point. My father lived to be 80. From this early beginning as a poor little red-haired girl in Corning, New York, Sanger went on to go to boarding school. This is one of those contingent happenings in her life. She had had a great fuss with the nun who ran the parochial school that she attended, and she refused to go back. She was only in the eighth grade. Her sisters, who worked at domestic, as domestic servants in Corning, decided that Margaret needed to leave town. And so they pooled their resources, and Margaret Sanger went uh, to the Claverack and Hudson Institute. It's an institution I'm, that no longer exists, but that I have great respect for. It, it opened the door for young Maggie Higgins of Corning, New York, and she entered. She did not graduate. The money ran out. And so again, she was forced to make some kind of a decision about what she could, would and could do. Now, for women in this particular period, and we're talking about 1900, there were very few choices. She be could become a domestic servant as her sisters, but that would not be what Margaret, what Higgins would do. She could become a, a teacher, but she was much too impatient. Uh, she could perhaps marry, uh, but this would be the end of all of her ambitions because with her mother's role as a, as a constantly pregnant figure in her mind, uh, she certainly did not want to marry, and birth control, I remind you, was illegal. So uh, Margaret Sanger made another choice, and throughout her life, it seems to me, she makes the kind of adroit choices that lead her to a very successful campaign as a birth control advocate. She went to nursing school. It was a new vocation for women at the time. Again, she did not finish. She was overwhelmed by the courtship of William Sanger. She went and for a few years led the life of a suburban woman, raising her three children in Hastings-on-Hudson. Who's been to Hastings-on-Hudson? <coughs> Lovely place. Oh, you've been everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But Sanger, after a while, tired of this. And it was she that encouraged the family to move to New York. And it is she that recouped her nursing career uh, and the event that led her to Sadie Sachs and her epiphany, her road to Damascus, on which she decided that she would devote her life to birth control. Now, the question remains, how did she do it? Uh, this is what I thought often as I uh, reviewed the successful campaigns uh, that she undertook. It, 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 it is simply amazing to me 
uh, that this woman could have been so important. Yes, of course there were others. Yes, of course attitudes towards sex in the United States were changing. But it was Margaret Sanger who certainly helped shape those changes in attitudes. And I think that we have to give her a good deal of credit, not only for the birth control movement, but for what birth control does for women. It separates sex from reproduction. And that is a signal contribution to all of our, our lives. So the question remains, how do you do it? Even after she had made this decision, uh, that she would work for, for birth control, she had to shape public opinion. Now, I want to give you just a few uh, instances and examples of the kinds of things that Sanger uh, did. And I certainly look forward to your questions and comments. First of all, she decided that she would break the law in an act of civil disobedience she set up the first birth control clinic in the United States. It was illegal to give information to women, but she decided that she would test the law. And so in 1916, the first birth control clinic in the United States opened in Brooklyn on 46 Amboy Street. I know about some of you been there as well. You too. You know. <laughs> uh, and the women came. Um, Sanger had had been active before this. She had made these homemade placards uh, that read in in uh, both Hebrew and Italian, because that was the target group on the Lower East Side. Mothers, do you want another child? Mothers, can you afford another child? If not, come to the clinic. And they came. Uh, there were wonderful pictures of those old-fashioned strollers lined up in front of the clinic. 40 patients a day. And then on the 10th day, a well-dressed woman arrived. Sanger was suspicious uh, and wanted to be fitted for what we call a diaphragm and what that generation called pessaries. And Sanger uh, took her in the back room and fitted her and gave her uh, a diaphragm. And the next day, the police arrived. Sanger was arrested. She had known that this would happen, but she found it a useful method of propaganda. Sanger is one of those people that can squeeze every bit of successful propaganda out of everything that she does. So between her indictment and her eventual uh, uh, two months in jail, uh, she has a lovely picture of herself. And she's a delicate woman with auburn hair taken with her two surviving children, and they have their head on uh, her shoulder. It's a wonderful maternal scene. It was printed in almost every newspaper in the United States. And uh, when Sanger went to jail, uh, she uh, 
spent most of her time trying to teach all the other women in jail how to use birth control. When she was released, uh, again, she had this wonderful sense of how, how to get publicity and, success, and positive uh, publicity. Uh, when she was released, uh, she immediately began a lecture tour throughout the United States. And by this means, by this growing combination of a society that is, especially women, looking for some sort of solution to the problem of, of, uh, of, of Margaret's mother and these unplanned uh, pregnancy, but this combination of Sanger's lecture and of changing public attitudes uh, leads to financial support. Sanger was able to attract the interest of, especially in New York, many, many uh, rich men and women with deep pockets. And with this money, uh, she began to organize her national group, the American Birth Control League, she began to send pamphlets. She began to actually invite doctors to support the movement. Uh, most physicians remained very suspicious, and you can ask me why that is the case later. Um, but in fact, um, Sanger had very, very few allies during this period, except for a body of women who supported her and supported uh, these famous uh, speeches that she would give. She would arrive in a city and say, no woman is free who does not control her own body. May the politicians in 2012 try to remember that. And uh, she would say, uh, if you are strongly sexed, and no women use the word sexed, you are richly endowed. And they believed her, and they supported her um, organizations. Sanger also was a very successful writer. This is another thing that surprises me. This is a woman who did not have a, a, a wonderful education, however uh, uh, successful the Claverack School was, uh, but she worked on her writing, and some of her books sold over a half million copies. Any author would be proud <laughs> with, with that. And she also wrote the most... <clears throat> I suppose the most dramatic explanation with pictures and hands in places that the, um, especially women's fingers didn't go very often, uh, uh, it was an explanation of what birth control methods actually existed at the time. And this is another surprising thing about, about Sanger. While she's do while she's doing that, she doesn't really have the answer. Yes, women can use diaphragms, but they all have to be measured. Yes, a woman can use 
spermicide douches, but they're not very effective. So during this time, uh, Sanger is making a case for something that really, really doesn't exist. Birth control doesn't exist insofar as very effective methods are concerned until Inovid in 1960. But nonetheless, uh, she makes the case at the same time uh, that she is working very hard and listening to a new group of doctors. They're called endocrinologists, and they know all about hormones. Sanger is smart enough to figure out that hormones have the answer to successful contraception. It's true. She looks at a number of different methods in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and in the 1930s, she's beginning to take her crusade internationally. She, uh, Margaret Sanger is the founder of the International Planned Parenthood Federation, as well as uh, our national federations. But she organizes conferences, and I give her credit for the amount of humiliation that she was willing to put up with from a number of doctors and endocrinologists who would let her organize uh, the conference and edit the scientific papers, but they didn't want Margaret Sanger's name on the program. Uh, she survived all this, and from these meetings and conferences, uh, she became an, an expert in the best ways to prevent contraception. And that, of course, was progesterone. She figured out that Dr. Gregory Pincus, uh, Gregory Pincus is a defrocked Harvard a professor who didn't get tenure, who in my judgment might have, should have gotten a Nobel Prize, but of course didn't. Pincus had left Harvard and he'd set up a freestanding laboratory in Worcester, Mass. And he was dependent on money from pharmaceutical companies as well as uh, private funds. And it's Sanger who is able to convince her very, very wealthy friend, Catherine Dexter McCormick, that it is Gregory Pincus that has the answer to contraception. Uh, Sanger had asked for years for a pill. She, kept, she actually used that word as, as early as 1921. But in 1953, she and Catherine Dexter McCormick drive to Worcester. They go into Gregory Pincus's lab. He, of course, is thrilled. Uh, he senses that uh, this might be some financial support. He has been financed by Searle. He's been actually uh, been working on steroids for <clears throat> arthritis as well as, and he's the world's expert in this, mammalian eggs. Sanger and uh, uh, McCormick go into the lab and after a morning, 
uh, they commit themselves to Gregory Pincus's work. Catherine McCormick says, uh, here's $10,000, and uh, when I get in touch my, with my money man, you will have more. And indeed, it's McCormick's money, uh, which stretches into millions of dollars, uh, that initially funds uh, the research. And in, <clears throat> indeed, some of the testing uh, for the pill. By 1960, and at this stage of her life, uh, Margaret Sanger is uh, declining, deteriorating, but she is well enough uh, to understand what has happened. Uh, Inovid, which is the birth, first birth control pill that's put on the market, um, is accepted, is effective. And when she dies in 1966, she is well aware of the fact uh, that she has been the principal shaper of a form of liberation for all women. That form of liberation is under attack astonishingly uh, today. But I hope that all of us will try to fight a, a, a struggle that will be ongoing for many, many years with the perseverance and the diligence and the intelligence of Margaret Sanger. Thanks. So I'm looking for some comments and Whatever? Yes. Well, that was very illuminating, and um, I'm interested in what her husband did. Oh. You didn't well, mention him after. Yeah, well, um, Margaret Sanger, our heroes sometimes have messy personal lives. Uh, and I, <clears throat> Margaret Sanger divorces William Sanger, the father of her three children, <clears throat> in 1921. In 1922, she marries uh, J. Noah Slee. Imagine having the name J. Noah Slee. But J. Noah Slee owns the three-in-one oil. Oh, no, we all have little cans of three-in-one oil. He's a tremendously wealthy guy who adores Sanger. The people who worked in the American Birth Control League office said that the only reason she married him was that uh, he introduced her to the form letter. Sarah got thousands of letters from all over the country. You could mail a letter in the 20s and 30s to Margaret Sanger, New York City, and it would be uh, delivered. But here comes this rich husband, whom she loved, uh, and who was willing to support uh, birth control. He better, by the way. But Margaret Sanger, the other thing about Margaret Sanger uh, is that she had numerous, and I mean numerous, lovers. This is a woman who loved and enjoyed sex. It was part of her life. So she had a number of romances with uh, everyone from H.G. Wells to Havelock Ellis 
she always thought that uh, uh, Englishmen made better lovers than Americans, uh, but she had lovers throughout throughout the world. So uh, it is an unusual life. I certainly don't make any judgments on her sexual life, her private sexual life, because she was she was not publicly open about it, but she was public, she was privately open with the men that she had sex with, and they all continued to love her. Uh, even if she said no more sex, uh, they would write her and take her out to dinner and take her dancing. So there is this reformer activist that I've uh, portrayed to you, uh, but on the other hand, there's this lovely woman who likes nothing better than to go dancing at the Orpheum. And Mr. Three and One stuck with her? With, with the what? The oil fellow. Oh, the oil guy? He, he wasn't so much of a dancer. No, but they continued to be married. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And in one of the um, more uh, unusual parts of her life, she nurses him. He has a stroke in 1940, and for two years, uh, she spends a good deal of her time nursing him and taking very, very good time uh, care of him. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, because she lived such a long life, yeah. this will be 80 years. Yeah, 86. And um, she clearly remained very alert, had a great active mind until the end. I wonder, uh, she lived at a time from essentially Marshby, Alabama, with the Supreme Court approved a forced sterilization of retarded yeah. through um, what happened with with the whole Nazis, and and so given the that sort of span from where the Supreme Court was in 1920ish, and where what happened with the world by 1950. Uh -huh. I wonder if you could describe how her views evolved. Uh -huh. uh, because apparently they they would have. She had some views on eugenics. Oh, oh sure. She over was 50, a... Over 50 years, one would think potentially that her views in 1920 wouldn't be the same as her views say, in yeah. 1950. Definitely. Um, I'll probably give a too long answer. Um, you referred to a case in Alabama. I'm going to refer to give context to Buck v. Bell. Do any of you know Buck v. Well, it's, uh, uh, Bell? It's a case in <laughs> 1927. Uh, a young Virginia woman is uh, sterilized involuntarily. Supreme, goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, which includes a former president, William Howard Taft, a very <clears throat> popular and beloved jurist, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, who is a great civil libertarian. The court rules that involuntary sterilization is no different from enforced vaccination, and furthermore, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now this is the context 
in which Margaret Sanger became a eugenicist. Uh, we certainly cannot in any way condone her support of eugenicism. My theory is that she turned to eugenicists because she wanted legitimization of the birth control movement. And she put biologists, endocrinologists, etc., all of whom were, were eugenicists of varying degrees on her boards. She did come to the point where she approved never eugenicism for groups of people, but for individuals who were insane. Now, this is before the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, she says hardly anything about eugenicism. And this surely is one of the things that all of us should be aware of. She never took back these earlier views. But my basic view of her eugenicism is that it's feminist eugenicism. She believes if everybody will use birth control, that we will have better human beings. Children can be spaced. Mothers can take care of the, the children. Uh, and it, in a way, her view is progressive, but it's contemptible, of course, that she ever accepted any ideas of involuntary sterilization. Is that sort of an answer? Right, because I, I, it, I guess my point, the, the point that you make is that she never really withdrew her earlier support. Never, never did. Because I started my with the fact that things that she believed in were common and sanctioned by the Supreme Court, so of this country. Yes, so but she wasn't. Yes, she wasn't off the mainstream by by her views. Regrettably. They were Regrettably, it's a good word. Um, I, I also think that we should have a national conversation about eugenicism. Uh, there are states, I think Idaho is one, uh, where involuntary sterilization of mental patients is still on the board. There, even after the Holocaust and this revulsion over uh, certain forms of eugenicism, Americans continued to sterilize what they called feeble-minded. Feeble-minded is this big collection of people. Uh, it's hard to tell who they are, uh, but nonetheless, this is a group of people who are subject, when, if they're in institutions, to involuntary sterilization. There are other forms of eugenicism that exists today, they're mostly individual. They're private and they're individual. But there's, I caution you to think that eugenicism died after the Holocaust because it was so revolting and Americans wouldn't do that. Americans continue to do it. In fact, I believe there's a new book out on eugenicism that, that argues that the number of involuntary sterilizations went up in the United States from 1939 to 1947, which is simply astounding. Thank you. Yeah. Along that line, does your book document the first 
use of the word eugenics in her in her thinking or the first oh that's a good question oh uh-huh. it certainly doesn't appear to be the motivating uh-huh. of, you know, no no I, I, yeah um well, I think she learned, I think the first time she ever wrote a letter about you, using the word eugenics was to Havelock Ellis, the great sexologist in, in uh, uh, England. And he was a eugenicist and he used the word because, as you know, uh, the word is one that was a neo, neologism uh, made by Francis Galkin meaning good genes. And Havelock Ellis and all of Margaret Sanger's British friends knew the word. So uh, Havelock Ellis in 1917 sends Sanger a, an article he's written, and the word eugenics is in that article. And I think it's from that time on that <clears throat> she learns about eugenicism and possibly uses the word. I can trace in two of her magazines, along with all this books and, that she was writing, she was also writing, she was editing a, the Birth Control Review, which is an incredibly time-consuming thing. And there are articles by the 1918-1920 that use the word eugenics in that particular periodical. Yes? How do you address the accusations of racism? Racism. Um, Margaret Sanger has been accused, as you know, of being a racist. This is a very charged issue in the African-American community. My view of Sanger and her racism is that she never, ever dealt with groups of people that she singled out. When black leaders came to her in New York in 1930, there was a division in the African-American community uh, between those who supported uh, Marcus Garvey and the United Negro Improvement Association and those who supported uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. And there still is a division in the African-American community about contraception, about sterilization, etc. Sanger set up her clinic. To not have set up a clinic in Harlem would, to me, have been an indication of racism. She believed in birth control for everyone. She is like a racehorse that they put blind, you put blinders on all she saw most of the time was what I can do to make contraception something that all human beings will use. Now on a personal level, uh, she was she opposed segregation and wrote about it before World War II. In a personal story, one of her housekeepers, an African-American, uh, was not served, this is in 1939, was not served uh, in a, a bus station uh, in Nebraska or Kansas. And when Sanger found out, she wrote to the head of the Greyhound bus and said, uh, this is disgraceful 
and I want you to apologize to my housekeeper. These are indications to me that in a society that was segregated, that uh, was certainly <clears throat> not post-1960, she is someone that was ahead of the curve in terms of her attitudes and her behavior toward African Americans. Yes. She began in, in Brooklyn in an Italian and Jewish neighborhood. What kind of response did she get from the churches? Uh, we're right across the street from the cathedral. <laughs> Do you really want me to get into this? <laughs> um, Sager responded to enemies, as many reformers do, and she certainly responded to the challenges of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, in my judgment, so overstated its position, so violated her civil liberties by closing up lecture halls, by in one famous instance in 1930, the, um, the Catholic Bishop, Archbishop Hayes, who sent the police to close down a Sanger meeting and Sanger was carried off and jailed for a period of time. The Catholic Church was her historic enemy and uh, Again, we see that the Catholic Church is simply intransigent on this issue. My belief, as long as you brought this up, is uh, that the Catholic Church lives in a civil society. It can do whatever it wants to its communicants. It can, it can, it can sign them to Hades if it wants to for using birth control. But when it steps over the line and tries to violate all of our rights in terms of contraception, then it is not a, a, a good neighbor. I, I'm sure some of you, <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes, in the back. Oh, way back? Way back. Um, hi, yes, I'm, I'm so surprised that uh, contraceptive health is such a big issue. Oh. Coming from some politicians whose name I won't say, who, who used to believe in small government. Yes. And then they want to get to 150 yes. million female bodies. I don't understand this. Yeah. I think about the situation uh, after Ceausescu fell in Romania. And I read articles about women that when, when mothers died early, fathers couldn't take it, they put the children up in orphanages. And I remember the pictures of some of these Romanian orphanages. And I want to give you the names of three women who are my ancestors. Um, Sarah Jane Anderson Porter, mother of five, dead at 23. Um, Elizabeth Jeffers Ireland, mother of eight, dead at 38. And Hannah Smiley, dead at 48, mother of 10. But I don't think we can go back to that because um, I don't want Romania to happen here. <laughs> And I just wonder why is it so difficult for people to understand if you can prevent an unwanted birth, then, then abortion might not be such a big issue. And it would go down like yeah. it does in the Netherlands and a per capita basis. Let me speak this a little bit about abortion. I think we've, we've uh, 
made some real mistakes about abortion. We've turned it into something that's individual. You know, these women have to hustle into uh, perfectly legal clinics. We should have made this into a collective right of all women. But that battle was lost. And I think that the arguments about against contraception and abortion really began after Roe v. Wade. They were orchestrated by the Catholic Church and fundamentalist Protestant religions. They were picked up by a group of politicians. Think Newt Gingrich in 1994. And now they have become one of these issues that um, have simply exploded. I am hoping that as a result of the election in November, uh, that we will be able to show those folks who are climbing aboard to what some think is just a good political issue, and we can show them that this stuff died. It died in 1960 when Inova became an effective form of birth control. Who knows? Uh, maybe one or two more questions. I'm sure you all. Yes. Uh, I'll be 60 in uh, about six months. Oh, well, thank you. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks to the second doctor. The first doctor wanted to inject something into me, and my heart stopped. Then they could pull me out. They suctioned me out and throw me away. And then all of a sudden, my father said for a split second when my mother was crying, she said, we want a second opinion. I think he has a right to live. So then Emma Hughes enters in and says, keep your weight down. It'll be an all right baby. Here I am. Then I'm four years old and I hold my baby brother. That's unbelievable to me. Every baby I ever hold, I think, my God, first it was this little thing, and now I'm holding life. I don't know. Well, certainly this is an honorable position, but I have a different position, especially uh, about when life begins. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that fertilize eggs to make the most exaggerated case, which will end birth control, in vitro, everything. I, I, I don't believe that. I credit what you believe. If you want to believe, uh, that a fertilized egg is a person, if you want to believe that a fetus at five months is a person, that's okay. I don't accept that. So what the issue here is, as the woman next to you said, it's the intrusion of the government, especially by these folks who want small government. They don't want any government intrusion, and yet they're the ones who believe in vaginal sonograms. <laughs> does, this, does, does this answer? I mean, we can disagree about this. And this is a country in well, which you, you can have your views. If somebody, I have, uh, have a friend of me back home, and what he did was, back in 1974, he says, Dale, what do I do? What do I do? $400 and get away from my problem. So he did. The baby's dead. I think he means that it should be in, in, in the woman's the, decision. The mother, the mother didn't like him all of a sudden, but then when she got married again, she has two beautiful boys and girls. I think that he killed it. That's his choice, but I'm not for it. 
Uh, no, okay. it's a choice. It's a choice. Oh, okay. I mean, it's happened. Uh, here's a question. One last couple. Yeah. How did um, the suffragists and the women oh, respond to Margaret Sanger and how did she respond to that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, all your questions have been good. <laughs> it's terrible to say. <coughs> My students say, when I say that's a good question, they say, why did I ask that good question? The suffragists and Margaret Sanger didn't get along at all. Carrie Chapman Cat, who is the leader of the National American Women's Suffrage, at, at the moment of the passage of uh, the 19th Amendment and its ratification, writes Sanger a letter and says, I, I cannot support her. It's vulgar and obscene. The Sanger's reaction to this, you can imagine, uh, she came to think that voting was much less important than birth control. among us might agree with Sanger, uh, but Sanger also never got along with other reformers very well. So uh, the suffragists went their, their way, and Alice Paul, who's the most interesting in many ways of the suffragists, she never supported birth control. It was too polluting and contaminating. So, uh, too bad. But Sanger, I think, uh, certainly made her point <clears throat> when she said uh, that those in the suffrage movement who don't support me are uh, simply fancy socialites. She was always talking about fancy socialites, although. Uh, she did take a good deal of funding. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank you all.